Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 51. Last week, I wrapped up with Artaxerxes III, when he was concurrently ruling as the Egyptian pharaoh of the 31st dynasty, as well as the king of Persia. And when I was coming to the end of his reign, I mentioned that there are two competing theories concerning his death. The first, which is supported by a single tablet which is currently found in the British Museum, is that he died from natural causes. The other theory is that his death was more naturally Persian, meaning that he was murdered. Obviously, the second one is a bit more dramatic, and is also what I'll begin this episode with. So let's get started. In the last episode, I mentioned that Bagoaz was the chief of the eunuchs when Artaxerxes No. 3 invaded Egypt in 343 BC. After that successful invasion, Bagoaz was promoted to Artaxerxes' vizier. While in this position, he internally allied with Mentor from Rhodes. Remember that after the Egyptian campaign, Mentor was put in charge of the coastal and maritime regions of Persia. Bagoas held a similar position over the satrapies, which included Egypt. Bagoas would incrementally gain power to the point that he essentially ran the empire for Artaxerxes towards the end of the king's reign. Then, in 338 BC, Bagoas and Artaxerxes had a falling out. The cause of the falling out is currently unknown. Now, there is an apocryphal tale that Bagoas was a native Egyptian who murdered Artaxerxes because the king had killed the sacred Apis bull. But, this story has no historical basis. Either way, it appears that Artaxerxes was in the process of pushing Bagoas from power, and Bagoas wasn't going to go away easily. Bagoas wanted to remain in office, so he set into motion a plan to murder the king and install the king's son, who would become known as Artaxerxes IV, as a puppet ruler. But the road to the throne was not a clear-cut affair, as number four was number three's youngest son. So, not only would Bagoas have to murder the king, but also much of the royal family. And recall to the last episode when I covered how Artaxerxes III murdered much of his own royal family to secure his place on the throne 20 years previously. It seems those violent royal chickens were coming home to roost. And with the death of much of the royal family, number four took the throne, controlled by the eunuch. During his reign, there was constant fighting on the empire's western border with Macedonia, fighting led by the Greek city-state's leaders Philip II, then Alexander the Great, a threat that was building to a crescendo. As such, the Greek threat wasn't a short-term problem. More on that in a minute. Back in Persia, number four would grow weary of the control Bagoas wielded over his kingship. With other members of the royal court, he plotted to have Bagoas murdered, of course. Being Persian and all, that's the way things get done. But Bagoas had seen much of this before, and didn't waste a minute. He had Artaxerxes number 4 murdered first. Should have seen that one coming. Bagoas then elevated a cousin of number 4 to the throne as King Darius III, 
in 336 BC, when the new king was at the relatively old age of 43. Prior to becoming king, Darius had proven a capable soldier in the war against the Caduzzi. The Caduzzi were an ancient group that lived in what is today northwestern Iran. After that war, he became the satrap of Armenia, then the royal courier. Think of this as the official messenger. And in a time where messages were hand-delivered, it's easy to underestimate this position. He would likely not only deliver messages, but wait for the recipient to read them. And as they did, he would read their body language to relay both the response and the nonverbal cues to the king. No doubt an important position in this ancient society. But Darius III was not groomed to be king, and given how many higher position heirs there were, he surely didn't expect to be king, and he wasn't ready. But to be fair, given how many had been murdered, and the ultimate conqueror was on the horizon, there was probably no one ready to be king of Persia. And before I move on, I'm going to back up a bit and give you a little bit more detail on the murderous vizier, Bagoas. A separate story has Bagoas becoming very rich by confiscating the sacred writings of the Egyptian temples and then selling them back to the priest for large sums. A different story tells of how the Jewish high priest of Jerusalem murdered his own brother in the temple, then Bagoas, having been fond of the murdered man, put a new tax on the Jews. No opportunity wasted. But he would go a bit further, personally entering the temple while claiming that he was purer than the murderer who was still performing the priestly office. Bagoas would later be blamed for the murder of Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, and given his history, this seems in line with his overall MO. He seems like quite the character, a classic evil villain from classical antiquity. Darius III would, like his cousin, become weary of his vizier, and in doing so seek to assert his independence. Bagoas went back to his trusty playbook and attempted to murder the king with poison. But you only get so lucky, and Darius was warned, and turned the tables, forcing Bagoas to drink the poison himself. Darius would remain on the throne until 330 BC. But this wasn't a stable time for the Persian Empire, as large portions of the territory were governed by unreliable satraps and the general population can be fairly characterized as dissatisfied and fomenting rebellion. This included the rebellious leader known as Kabasha in Egypt, who I covered in the last episode. In 336 BC, Philip II of Macedon was authorized by the League of Corinth to begin a holy war of revenge against the Persians for desecrating and burning the Athenian temples during the Second Persian War a war that ended over 100 years earlier. It seems the Persians weren't the only ones who could hold a grudge. But Philip was more of a conqueror in search of an excuse. And this would do just as good as any. Philip would send an advance force into Anatolia. 
And since it was an advance force, essentially a smaller scouting expedition, he would not be part of it. This force was charged with liberating Greeks currently living under the control of the Persians. Philip would arrive as the forces began to pick off cities one at a time. But then the unexpected. Philip was assassinated, and the campaign was halted. Back in Greece, his heir, Alexander, consolidated his control of Macedonia, along with other parts of Greece. Two years after the invasion started, so in 334 BC, Alexander, who was not yet great, arrived to begin his invasion of the Persian Empire. The invasion was followed almost immediately by his victory over the Persians at the Battle of Granagus. Granagus was in northwestern Anatolia, near the ancient city of Troy. And this engagement was a bit different, as Darius didn't even bother coming. Why? Well, he didn't think much would come of it. After all, at this point, it was just Alexander, without a suffix, the young, recently promoted Greek leader. And Darius figured the local satraps were more than capable of dealing with the menacing Greeks. Darius would remain at his home in Persepolis. Persepolis is in southern-central Iran, to the east of Susa. And Anoa previously mentioned that the Persian capital was at Susa. But in reality, the Persian Empire had several administrative capitals. Persepolis, though, had a grand ceremonial complex where it's thought the king received gifts from his subjects at the festival marking the spring equinox. Back to the wars. To Darius, letting the satraps fight the battles seemed a logical and sound plan. After all, the last time the Greeks invaded Persian-occupied territory in Anatolia, specifically the Spartan king Agesilaus II, the Persians were trapped on the peninsula. The Persians also seeded rebellions in Greece so that the king would have to attend to problems at home. Darius attempted to employ the same strategy, in this case fomenting the Spartans to rebel against the Macedonians. But it didn't quite work out as planned, with the Spartans being defeated at Megalopolis. Darius would show up about 18 months later at the Battle of Issus in 333 BC. Issus was on the south-central coast of what is today Turkey, essentially on its border with Syria, merely a stone's throw from the modern city of Aleppo. This time, Darius wasn't messing around. Enough of this minor Greek. Darius's forces would outnumber Alexander's soldiers by at least two to one. Remember in the last episode when I said there's no replacement for sheer numbers except training and leadership? It's still true. Alexander, presumably more mobile and seemingly better led, would persistently outmaneuver the Persians. He would beat them soundly, but not capture many as they fled, a retreat led by Darius. And the king was in such a hurry that it's reported he left behind his chariot, his bow, and his royal mantle, all of which were later recovered by Alexander. A similar scene would repeat itself two years later at the Battle of Guagimila. But before that battle, Alexander would make his way to Egypt. In order to get to Egypt from Anatolia and Syria, 
Alexander would pass through Gaza, and the Persians had taken advantage of the hilly terrain by building many earthen fortifications. And this location was key to Alexander's plan to take Egypt. The fortress was located on the high ground, offering a strategic defensive advantage. It was also located at the edge of a desert from which the surrounding area could be easily defended. And it was from this location in Gaza that the primary trade route went to Egypt. The Persian forces at Gaza were commanded by the eunuch Battis, who refused to surrender to Alexander. Apparently, Battis was physically imposing and had a reputation for being ruthless. And keep in mind that this is the second ferocious Persian eunuch we've run across. There's got to be more to this. Maybe I'll get to that later. For now, know that he was hoping to hold out long enough until Darius would arrive with supplies and troop reinforcements. He knew of Alexander's approach and prepared by bringing into the city as many supplies as he could. Prepared for an extended siege. He may have been aware of Alexander's intended strategy of controlling the coastal regions before turning his attention to inland Persia. Battis thought he could benefit from Gaza's high walls, some 60 feet or 18 meters from base to top of his forts. But that wasn't going to stop Alexander. When Alexander finally got to Gaza, he encamped near the southern side of the city and surveyed the scene. At the same time, the siege ensued. By his estimation, the southern walls of the city were the weakest point. It was near this point that he would build mounds, essentially shrinking the wall's height along with providing a defensive position. Not that he had any tendency to be defensive. He had previously employed siege engines and had come up with a very functional design. And he took the recently invented catapult and improved on it. Warfare spurring technology. One day during the siege, the Persians made a raid against Alexander's siege engines. Alexander personally led his troops in a counterattack, and as war is fraught with peril, in this counterattack, Alexander was wounded. Specifically, his shoulder was injured. The extent and long term implications are lost to history. Afterwards, more siege equipment would arrive from Tyre. But it would take four separate assaults before the walls were breached. But breached they were. Even then, Battis refused to surrender to Alexander. And to his credit, I guess, Alexander did truly respect the courage in his enemies and may have shown his typical mercy towards a defeated foe. But Battis refused to bow to Alexander. He also remained silent and is reported to have behaved in a disrespectful manner. According to the first century Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus, Battis would be killed by Alexander, while Alexander emulated Achilles' treatment of the fallen Hector. And it was a particularly gruesome death that I'll avoid recounting, not only to spare you, but also to maintain my iTunes clean rating. And with that, Alexander had Gaza. He then summarily executed the adult males 
while the fate of the women and children was not much better, as they were sold into slavery. As a result of his victory at Gaza, Alexander was allowed to proceed south into Egypt pretty much unimpeded, no threat to his supplies or his communications with the homeland, and if he did need reinforcements, the roads were clear. And to the Egyptians, it was finally the moment they had been waiting for. Their hatred for the occupying Persians was not only well documented, it was also well known to their historical contemporaries. Why so much ill will? Well, for several centuries, the Persians treated Egypt as little more than a grain producer. The Egyptians would welcome Alexander as their king, even allowing him to sit on the throne of the pharaohs. They gave him the crowns of both Upper and Lower Egypt, and even named him the incarnation of Ra and Osiris. He was seen as their liberator, at least for now. He outlined his plans to build Alexandria, and got to work. He did, though, make sure that the tax revenues would flow in his direction. And finally, he didn't install a foreign satrap, instead leaving the Egyptians to be governed by natives. But these governors knew who they reported to. By installing an Egyptian as governor, he helped to cement his authority. They may not have been free, but they certainly were freer. And with that, he departed for Persia, as Darius was awaiting him at what would become known as the Battle of Guagimila. This time, too, Darius commanded a larger force, including forces supplied by his various satraps, and he was fighting from a defensive position. Traditional military strategy holds that it takes two offensive troops to defeat one defensive troop, so advantage Persia. And in this case, he even had the element of surprise, but to no avail. Not to forget that the area is flat ground, terrain that should have aided his chariots with sides mounted on the axles. No matter, Darius would turn tail and haul out of there before the battle was decided, leaving his field commanders in charge of what is assumed to have been one of the largest armies ever assembled. Alexander would not only defeat the Persian troops, he would also capture their headquarters and Darius's family as prisoners. So decimated, in the modern sense of the word, was his army that the force would never recover. Darius fled to Ecbatina and attempted to organize another army, while Alexander captured Babylon, Susa, and the Persian capital at Persopolis. Alexander would loot and burn the capital, no doubt hoping to find Darius there. But he wasn't. Darius would write Alexander several letters pleading for his family back, but Alexander refused. Let that be a lesson. You can't negotiate from a position of weakness. Alexander's offer was that Darius could be reunited with his family if he would only acknowledge Alexander as the new emperor of Persia. Essentially, surrender. No dice. At least not yet. Darius is reported to have offered all of his empire west of the Euphrates River to Alexander in exchange for peace several times. And each time the Greek commanders encouraged Alexander to take the deal. But each time Alexander said, not yet. 
He was intent on capturing the fleeing Persian king along with all of Persia's territory. And while gaining ground, Alexander cemented his control of the defeated regions by enacting policies that formerly Persian subjects, now Greek subjects, found more tolerable than their former Persian rulers, just like he had done in Egypt. Like I said, Darius had fled to Ekbaktana in what is today central western Iran, and Alexander approached, stalking the Persian leader. Darius would run again, this time to Bactria, hoping that the location, owing to the flat terrain, would afford him a better opportunity to use what was left of his cavalry and mercenaries. Second verse, same as the first. Again. Darius would lead his army through a mountain pass, hoping that the winding road would slow a pursuing army. But the Persian forces knew they were being stalked and felt the constant threat of a surprise attack from Alexander. This demoralization would lead to desertions, and the reduced force size and foregone impending defeat led to a coup led by the satrap Bessus, along with Narbarzanes. And Bessus, having Narbarzanes in on the coup plan, was key, as Narbarzanes was the head of the palace guards. The same plan, again, several generations later. The two conspirators advised Darius to move command of the army to Bessus, who was presented as the more competent field commander. Even Darius had to realize by this point that his battlefield performance was, um, lacking. To be polite. In reality, though, he was horrible. Bessus reassured Darius that control of the army would be returned to him once Alexander was defeated. But Darius rejected the plan, and the commanders grew more fretful and weary, weary of another resounding defeat that was surely their fate. Then, a Greek mercenary known as Patron urged Darius to accept a bodyguard of Greek mercenaries rather than his usual Persian guards. This was to protect the king from the threat Patron merely suspected. But politics would win out, and Darius III would turn the Greek down. It said that the king suspected his final fate and had come to accept it. The validity of this thought, of course, will likely never be known. I'm not buying it. I think he was merely naive. This is, after all, the king who beat the poisoner at his own game. Bessus and Nabarzanes grew both brave and bold to the point that they tied up the king, threw him in an ox cart, and ordered the troops witnessing the encounter to march on. Nothing to see here. Quentin Curtius Rufus, the same Roman historian I mentioned a minute ago, wrote that just at the moment this was happening, Alexander and a small, highly mobile, probably cavalry force showed up and this caused the Persians to panic. The conspiring Persian coup leaders wounded Darius with their javelins and left him to die. Not terribly long after that, a Macedonian soldier would find Darius either dying or already dead in the ox cart, and Alexander was overwhelmingly disappointed, having come all this way just to meet the king on the battlefield but the Persians themselves beat him to the punch. After killing Darius, 
Bessus took the royal name Artaxerxes V and began calling himself the King of Asia. He was soon captured by Alexander, tortured, and executed. That King of Asia thing didn't quite work out. When Alexander found Darius's body in the wagon, he removed a signet ring from the dead king's finger. He would then send Darius's body back to Persepolis, where he gave him a magnificent royal funeral and ordered that he be buried, like all of his royal predecessors, in the royal tombs. Or so it was written. As of today, Darius's tomb has yet to be uncovered. With the old king defeated and buried, Alexander's control over Persia itself was complete. He would eventually marry Darius's daughter, attempting to cement the bond between the two kingdoms. And this bond would include the outlying satrapies, like Egypt. Remember, this is still their history, and I'm laying the groundwork for Greek control over the country. And believe it or not, there's actually much more to the battles between the Persians and Greeks. But that will have to wait for when I cover the Persians and the Greeks proper. And that's a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover Alexander's control over Egypt. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.